the disclaimer right at the start, there is no free points this morning. I'm breaking that rule this morning. We're going to, instead this morning, we're going to explore the widow's mite, this story that I'm sure people have heard. So frequently we're going to look a bit at what's going on in this story, about what it says about churches, and then we're going to ask a question about what it says to us as Christians. These were verses that we were given once many moons ago, and I think I've mentioned this story before. We were given these verses at sermon class way back when I was at Bible college. I say way back, it was only about three or four years ago I was given these verses. It's not that long ago. Not when we're talking about 2,000 years and stuff like that. But we were given these verses at at, at, um, sermon class, and we were told that the sermon that we delivered, because you had to deliver a sermon and get it critiqued. That wasn't a front process, by the way. Um, it often led to some quite strong arguments, once almost a punch-up, which was quite interesting. Um, none of that involving me, by the way. I didn't try to punch anyone. Um, but that did almost happen. But we were given these verses and we were told that we were not to preach on giving. That was what we were not to preach on. So I remember reading commentary after commentary and all they spoke about was, guess what? Giving. And then I asked Google. And eventually I found a a blog written by a theologian and he began to unpack it. And I thought, okay, now I can finally understand why you could maybe argue that actually what's going on here isn't primarily about giving. So with me saying that, you might wonder, okay, if these verses aren't about giving, why am I using them to preach about giving? And that would be a very valid question to ask. And the reason I'm doing that is because these verses set a context for giving, which is one that I'm comfortable preaching about. It's actually quite an uncomfortable thing to preach about giving. I remember preaching Leslie about giving, and I didn't bother. I was like a bull in a china shop. It was great fun. But it's actually slightly different when you're a pastor. And when you know what's going on and when you know the people and, and you care and all these, these different factors are, are at play. And a lot of that I want to try and draw into the sermon as well. But these verses will give a context which I hope very shortly you will understand. And they will then help us to explore this topic of giving. So first let's have a little look at what's actually going on initially in these verses what we see is this widow being commended by Jesus. And she's commended publicly by Jesus as she does what most would see as a completely insignificant act. She puts these two copper coins, which Jesus knows is all she had, and she puts some in the offering. And others, of course, are shoving in probably masses of cash whatever the equivalent was back then. I'm not sure if they had paper money. Probably not back then. But there's an equivalent, I'm sure, because they were putting in large amounts. But Jesus recognises that the sacrifice and the gift that she has made is greater because the proportion that she has given is vast. And I often ask myself the question, why? What was going through her head as she did this? She was putting the last that she had to live on into this offering plate. 
Did she have some sort of prosperity notion where by if she's chucked lots into the offering plate, somehow God would bless her abundantly? There is no evidence there was any such notion back then of such things. Had she given up hope and decided I'm just going to put the last of what I have into the best place possible and accept that this is the end? I don't think that's the case either. Because I don't think Jesus would have praised either of those motives if that is why she had put the money in the plate. Jesus, of course, we know, sees her heart and recognises that the reason that she's done this isn't out of us inwardly selfish hope that she would get more than she put in. It wasn't because she had given up hope. It was because of adoration towards God. And because of that, she put this money in the plate. And that is why Jesus praises her action. It's not so that she would somehow get more out of it than she'd put in. But yet what we don't pick up, at least not initially, if we don't look at the surrounding context of these verses, is that the phrase poor widow should not exist in the temple. In temple law, it was set up so that widows were provided for. They were taken care of. The whole concept of a poor widow should not have existed. It simply shouldn't be. And isn't it remarkably interesting if you go to verse 45 of chapter 20, so you're just scanning back three verses here. Jesus says, And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, so he's saying this so everyone around him can hear it. Beware of the scribes who like to walk, or walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honour at feasts. Now note this part. Who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. So do you think it's coincidence that Jesus is speaking about devouring widows' houses and in the next part of the narrative is a widow's house? that has been devoured. The last that she had to live on is put into the temple offering. This shouldn't have been possible. She should have been provided for. And yet the context here is that she gives her last to the temple. So Jesus has condemned this teaching from these scribes. And scribes, of course, were the teachers in the temple. Jesus condemns what they've been teaching and warns people against what they're teaching. And now let's go to the verses after the story of the widow's mite. And this is from verse 5. And Jesus said, And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when not when there will be not one, one, sorry, I cannot get the grammar here. The days will come when there will be not one left here, one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Jesus now foretells 
the destruction of that temple. I don't think it's any coincidence at all that these three stories follow one after the other. The condemnation of the exploitation of the widow, then seeing the exploitation of the widow, and then the condemnation and the, the destruction foretold of the temple itself. It's no longer fulfilling its purpose. It's not fit for purpose. Jesus came because it wasn't fit for purpose to establish a new way. And now he is showing why it's not fit for purpose because part of what it was designed to do and created for, it's no longer doing. It exists for itself and not for the people that it was called to protect. So Jesus curses it, foretells its destruction, and of course we know it was destroyed. And it's never, ever been rebuilt again since. Despite many people wanting to rebuild it, it's never been rebuilt again since. In fact, now where the temple once was stands what they call the Dome on the Rock, a shrine to another religion. So what can we learn from this as we look at the concept of giving? And I wanted to set it within the context of what's actually going on in these verses because what I want us to understand is that for me, anyway, the church should never be about trying to gulp people or exploit people into giving. The purpose for us to gather as people is that we gather together to worship the living God as people who have encountered him, who have repented from the ways of sin, who have committed their life to Jesus Christ, and who are on this difficult path of seeking first his kingdom. And we lean on one another in God's Holy Spirit as we do that. So it's not about exploitation and it's not about guilt. And we also have to, of course, note the context that we as a fellowship are in. Things have changed for people. I don't, looking around, I don't think everyone managed to get to our church meeting on Wednesday night. And of course, Mike spoke at our church meeting about the church finances and how giving needed to increase to sustain the, the budget. We, were, we, aren't, we aren't going to manage it as we currently are, as a reality. And that we have a couple of big bills coming in just this month that could wipe out pretty much most of the current account. So that presents a problem. These verses present a context. But within that context is one thing that is glaringly obvious. For all that has gone on and all the guilt that should be applied to the temple, to the teaching, to the culture that they had designed, Jesus praises the widow, praises her sacrifice. And not because she'd given up hope, but because here was somebody who had a heart that was captured by God and who gave accordingly. So I said, I had a question for us based on a context. And I've given us the context and hopefully we understand the context. The context is not about guilt or manipulation or anything like that. But the question is lifted directly from these verses and it is simply this. 
how much are our hearts captivated by God? And there are many different factors that we can use to assess how we would answer that question. We can default, default, I don't know what word I just said there, but default to some of the more obvious ones. Of course, we have our prayer life. How much are we praying? What's our devotional like? These are very important things. Are they sliding or are they priorities? Do we hunger and thirst for that time that we spend with God or is it an optional extra that we happen to add in if we feel we've sinned too much or we've got time? Where is God in that? Or our Bible study, I spoke to the kids this morning about the importance of the Bible, this 2,000-year-old book, and no one here is 2,000 years old. But this book is entirely relevant. How much are we reading it? Is it just when we have to? Or is it because we want to? Time is another precious commodity. Time is one of the most difficult balancing acts that we all have. As I look around this room, we've got people in different generations and circumstances of life. We've got students, we've got parents, we've got grandparents, we've got people at work. All these different things that we try to find balances on. How much time are we also spending to advancing God's kingdom? To furthering it? A lot of that will come with different things that we do within the church because this is one of the most obvious points that we see God's kingdom manifest and where we're trying to seek to, put, to push it into our community and further it. And of course money is another glaringly obvious one. Money I think is one of the most dangerous and most powerful idols we all wrestle with. It can entice us and entangle us as quickly as we blink. Because it's what makes our world go round. Everything pretty much revolves around money. Our status, our security, our ability to buy food. Everything can revolve around money. How much of a hold does it have on us? One of the ways we will know is by not only how much we are comfortable Cheerful giving, because that's what Jesus is asking of us. But how much we divert to various different priorities within our lives. Now again, I say that in a context where we as a church are in a changing context. I think Aberdeenshire is in a changing context as people increasingly are finding it more difficult to find jobs and to keep jobs. So our financial context changes. But with what we have... What priorities do we place upon it? That question never changes. The levels might, but the question itself doesn't change. God asks us to be cheerful givers. And cheerful not because somebody has managed to give eloquent stuff up the front which guilts us or obligates us into giving more but cheerful because our hearts are so captured by our God that we joyfully release that which he has given us to further his kingdom. And that's why I'm asking about our hearts this morning because that's the real 
a major issue. I'm sorry, but as, as, I'm, as I'm preaching, I've got lots of blindfolded kids walking past. Not a sight we often get, but let's hope we don't hear any clatter in a moment. So where are our hearts this morning? I, I've given us examples as to the kind of ways in which we can assess our hearts. And in that I give us a challenge in these areas to seek first the kingdom of God. In all these areas, in our prayer time, in our Bible reading, in our time with our money. And I'm saying this not so that we can ignore all the other things, because balance is always required. You will only be an effective Christian if you're a good husband or wife, if you're a good parent, if you're a good worker. Work also counts, by the way. Um, all these different things. We cannot use the church to neglect other parts of our life. We need to find the right balance. And I, only you can discern if you have that balance or not. I'm asking the questions. The answers. You guys and I, I need to work out for myself as well where the balance is right and where the balance isn't. What God asks of us is to be a transformed people. Transformed because our hearts are captivated by him. And that it's what makes us things such as cheerful givers. Now I'm not saying that we should be what I would maybe define as stupid givers. And by that I mean people that give and don't have enough, for instance, to get food for their family. I don't think that that is wise. I think that's foolish, actually. And I think it breaches other New Testament teachings, such as in Timothy, where it says, if you can't provide for your family, you're cursed worse than the pagans. It needs to be wisdom. God doesn't call us to be foolish. But he does call us to be generous and to be cheerful. So where is God? and our priorities. This morning basically is a spiritual MOT in some senses where God comes and our list of priorities, where his kingdom comes and our list of priorities. I don't know the answers to these questions for you guys. I know the answers to the questions for me and they present a challenge to me. Is God getting the place that he demands. Let's, let's acknowledge that because God does say the first commandment is we have no gods before him. But the place actually which is most healthy for us to have him as well. Because when things get out of priority, we begin to try and work in our own strength and things can get messy for us and difficult and painful. The absolute best place for a Christian to be is with eyes upwards focused on God, who directs our attention outwards towards others and protects us inwards as we seek to serve him. So, the idol of mammon, money, what hold does it have on us as a Christian community, an outpost of the kingdom of God in a world that's rejected him? Where does the world's most powerful idol grip us? 
and where are we free of it? What are our priorities? And where is God in them? And in our lives, are we recognizing God as our provider, our sustainer, the one that gives us breath and life, the one who gives us spiritual life through Jesus Christ and his willing sacrifice? For every single one of us in this room, who have given our lives to Jesus Christ, something remarkable happened at that moment. God transformed our hearts, set us on a path of discipleship, asked us to follow him, in other words, and began this work of remaking us into the image of his son. But yet, for all God has done we wrestle against that which is around us. We wrestle against the habitual sins that all of us have. We wrestle against the temptations of the world as they bombard us in all the different ways in which they can. We wrestle against the enemy who knows exactly where our weak points are and is more than happy to test us in them. We wrestle to try and keep our hearts and our minds focused on God, to keep our ears open to him, to keep a passion for him in a world that it seems designed to take these things from us. But yet, we are promised in Jesus Christ as victory. So when we find that we have swerved from these things, we have a God that assures us he can return them to us. The passion, the focus, the ears that hear. The world cannot take these things away from us if we don't let it. And God can return them to us when we realize that we might have. How are our transformed hearts? And where is God as a priority within it? Now I said at the start of this, I don't want to preach a sermon which was all about guilt and manipulation. And I genuinely mean that. But what I do want to do within the sermon is ask hard questions. Because these verses have asked hard questions of me. So I feel obliged to share those hard questions with you guys. I don't want us to be a people that when we hear these kind of questions, respond with guilt. There's a huge difference between guilt and conviction. Guilt makes us mope around and feel sorry for ourselves, feel weighed down, feel burdened, miserable, and like we're not managing to do the kind of things that God wants us to do. Conviction comes from the Holy Spirit. This is something I can't do. I could probably create a situation where I make us all feel guilty. I don't want to do that. What I want to do is create a situation where the Holy Spirit can challenge us where we need challenged. Because that brings conviction. And conviction is different from guilt. Conviction comes from God and brings change. Guilt does none of those things. 
Guilt, in fact, might mean we try and do it all in our own strength and we would then fail. Conviction means that God speaks and things happen. So I hope as we ask these questions in the light of these verses that give us a context that things shouldn't be abusive or manipulative, but also recognize that when God works in our hearts, things change and our priorities need to reflect that. <coughs> that what is left in our hearts might be challenge, might even be conviction, but isn't guilt. That doesn't come from God. Where is God in our priorities? That is the spiritual MOT check. And for all of us, I pray that he answers that question for us. For some of us, we might find a bit of joy because we recognize, actually, I'm getting a balance right here. And in this area of my life, things are going quite well spiritually. And then there are other areas that will bring challenge because none of us are perfect. And we've all got different areas where things aren't in the right balance. But God is calling us to him, to be captured by him, to be focused on him. To do what Jesus asks of us when he summarized the law. The first one was, love the Lord your God. God doesn't desire merely obedience from you. He desires you. And that relationship that he can have with you. That's one of the things that Jesus died for, to reconcile humanity to God. Obedience comes from that relationship. So how is that relationship? That Jesus paid such a massive cost for us to have. And we will know the answer to that by where our priorities lie. So if there's challenge, embrace it. Where there isn't and there is joy Rejoice in it. But let's, folks, take hold of what Jesus has done for us and draw near to our God, desires, and is drawing near to us. Let's pray. Father God, we want to thank you above all for all that you have provided and showered upon each and every one of our lives. Lord, the very fact that we have breath this morning is because of your your. your a power, that breath of life that lives within each of us. Father, you are the God that, that sustains all things, the very fact that creation holds together and that this platform is a platform and, and that I'm a person is because you are holding all things together. Yet, Lord, we recognise too that these things are quite abstract. And you came as Jesus Christ in a very personal way to create personal, living and active relationships with a people, humanity that was designed to be in relationship and fellowship with you. And you achieved that. You broke down that dividing wall of hostility that is sin. You shattered that completely. You tore the temple veil in two to symbolize the fact that there is no division now between us and you. And call us into a living and active relationship with you. Lord, this morning we've asked 
some difficult questions about where our priorities lie in lots of different areas. Father, help us speak clearly into our hearts now and as we sing our closing song. Lord, convict us to ensure that you are one of our number one priorities in these areas. Lord, give us good prayer lives. Lord, powerful Bible reading times. That right balance of life, Lord, where we don't neglect neither you for other things or other things for you, but Lord, hold these things in balance and are fruitful in the different areas of our life. And with our money, Lord, may it not grip us, but may we be cheerful givers, given that which is the level that you're motivating us to give, Lord. And given it cheerfully, because our hearts aren't guilted or manipulated, but are captivated by you and focused on you. Speak to us by your Spirit, Lord, and continue working in each of our lives to shape us and mould us and make us like your Son, so that we can be fruitful here, so that we can bring glory to you, so that we can bring blessings to one another, and so that we can see your kingdom advance in our lives and the lives of those around us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.